0: Tolkien once wrote, How do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand there is no going back? There are some things that time cannot mend, some hurts that go too deep. Today, I have to say goodbye to my little man. The lymphoma has begun to cause his legs to swell, and my daughter Kelly informed me That he is probably less than 48 hours from his heart giving out from the stress the cancer is putting on him. Almost 12 years ago, Gunny came into our lives after the death of our beloved Beezer in midnight. He has given us so much love. He could be so silly. He would curl his lips in a fake snarl when he looked at you. We called it Gunny Snarl Face. I have known for a while this day was coming. Yesterday was the one-month anniversary of us being in our new home. I prayed and asked God to give my boy one month in his new home, so when we spread his ashes, he would know that we are here. But I could see him struggling, his mobility and breathing. I didn't want to make the choice I have to make. But being a good pet owner means you have to trade the years of love for that horrible moment when you must choose to say goodbye and not to be selfish and scream one more day because that would be deciding for me. And the choice I make is out of my love for Gunny, my buddy, my silly boy, my monkey man, my big galoot, Welcome everyone to episode
1: 260 of A Fable with Bowdry and Barry. Barry, it is our five year anniversary. They said it could never be.
2: Yeah. And, uh, look, in a lot of ways they were right. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) plaudits
1: are coming in from around the globe. Oh yeah. Uh, Everyone wanting to take a break and uh, wish us happy anniversary. So uh on this particular episode we're going to be offering up another one of my top 100 from the 80s. We're going to the Bruiser Brody Memorial Show from September 15th, 1988. Jumbo Saruda and Yoshiaki Yatsu taking on Jinichiro Tenru and Ashura Hara. This is quite the brutal slap and chop fest uh for you people out or, out there that uh, just enjoy seeing that kind of stuff as well. We're going to be offering up something that I ran across recently that was uh, one of my top moments of the 1980s, uh, and that is the This Is Your Life Jerry Lawler segment from Memphis uh, with Eddie Gilbert uh, playing the role of uh, Ralph Edwards. Uh, boy, we're going back a little bit there, Barry. So we're going to be talking about that. It's a fun segment, and uh, we're going to be talking about whether or not it still holds up, whether or not I still think it's one of the top moments of the the decade of the 1980s. So right now, Barry, why don't we go to our Match of the Week and let's see a little tag team match from all Japan. Our match of the week this week, we're going to go to the 15th of September, 1988. I don't know if you realize this, Barry, this, in fact, was the Bruiser Brody Memorial Show. Did you oh, know that, sir? I did not. I was yes. unaware. So we are talking Jumbo Saruda and Yoshiaki Yatsu taking on Jinichiro Tenru and Ashura Hara. Tell the folks what you thought about this week's match of the week, Bear.
2: This is a, I mean, first off, this is a tremendous match too. And you know, you're not going to get a dog when you got these guys and everybody knows the greatness. Certainly we've extolled, uh, and and discussed Jumbo Sharuda multiple times. It's, it's kind of one of my man crushes. And, uh, I absolutely just think the guy. You have more than one? Well, Patrick Swayze falls into that as well. Yeah. But I, I really was a huge Jumbo and still am a huge Jumbo Sharuda fan. Uh Tenru was a guy I saw Tenru like shit. I think it was nineteen seventy seven, the first time I ever saw Tenru. And uh he was uh working prelims in Florida. So I was he right worked there. in the
1: States uh, at least I think in I don't know about Florida, but in Mid Atlantic and out in San Francisco he wrestled as Tenru Shimade.
2: Yeah, and I want I think he I think he did a big tour of the country. Like I think he was in other I know mid Atlantic and Florida, I think even Georgia. He spent yeah. some time Yes, that's there. correct, yes. Yeah, and I I saw, it. you see, uh, there was a recent photo of Tenru. I think he was at a wrestling show, or it was some wrestling, somehow wrestling-related over the last couple of months, and he's got a back brace and has to walk with a, uh, I guess it's a crutch or crutches, but it's not the crutches that go underneath your arms, it's the one you hold onto with your hands that kind of go into your forearm. So his back is in really bad shape, which you could have seen as well the first, uh, I should say, the last couple of years of his career with that, that brace he had. He, he's just really destroyed his body. And Yatsu and Hara, Yatsu we've talked about previously. Yatsu is uh, a guy, an Olympic wrestler. Uh, right. I, I don't know if he ever, I forget if he made it or no, or if it was canceled. He uh,
1: actually, not to interrupt, uh, he was a member of the 1980 Olympic team. So he was, okay. Uh, yes. And then, uh, very interestingly, there was a time when he attempted, I believe, uh, to go out for the Japanese Olympic team. Uh, I want to say it was the 1988 Olympics uh, uh, or maybe earlier in the year. He tried to go back and uh, make the team. And think about that, the transition from being a full-time professional wrestler, uh, your Olympic, uh, amateur career is eight years in your past and now you have to transition uh, here's a big heads up for everybody. It's a little bit of a different style, Bear. What do you think?
2: Yeah, it's a little. You mean what? There's no uh, there's no drop <laughs> <Yeah>. kicks? or. <laughs> Amazingly, <laughs> the, the Sheik was never a, men- a <laughs> member of the Syrian <laughs> Olympic team. <laughs> yeah, imagine that's and that's. Uh, I'll tell you what. It, we we've talked about recording an episode where we're inebriated. And I imagine trying to flesh out the details of the Syrian <laughs> Olympic team with the Sheik as its leader, <laughs> throwing fire. And then Everybody facing, has pencils. <laughs> he's got pencils and they're facing the, the team from the Sudan with yes. Abdullah the Butcher. Well, we could have fun with that, but, uh, Yatsu was, yeah, and I remember that and I, I want to say, I, certainly I think time had passed him by a little bit, but I, if I'm correct, wasn't there a gambling problem with Yatsu? Uh, and,
1: That that I, I don't want to say because uh, if there was, I don't remember it, so I don't want to sit there and speculate.
2: Yeah, and I, I think it was. Yeah, and I think that was part of the reason he wasn't on the team. If I'm remembering correctly, it became some sort of scandal uh, to some degree, and I don't remember. But Yatsu was another guy we saw him in Florida. I think it was '82 or '83, and never got out of the prelims. And I know we d- we discussed a match, and I forget who it was, but it was Yatsu versus someone from Madison Square Garden, or at least the WWWF. And uh, I know we talked, Yatsu was another guy. It was just, for whatever reason, uh, it didn't become his biggest star. And I think it was. I think there were vices, whether it was gambling, alcohol, etc., cetera, uh, and maybe even both, but just a solid, solid wrestler. And uh, I think this match is a good match for Yatsu. The I think the shock here was Ashura Hara, and I uh, – you know, he's one of those guys nobody ever talks about, right? Like we really rarely does Hara's name come up and he was a solid worker. So I, I did the old, uh, Google machine, Jeff. I, I fired up the Google machine earlier and I broke it out and I did some horror research and I was shocked for some reason he was a member of the old IWE in Japan. Like he really went back. And, uh, for those that are not aware, the two main companies, for years in Japan, we're all Japan and New Japan. Certainly there's thousands of companies, not thousands, there's probably a hundred companies at this point, but there was a third company and that was the IWE and their, their leader, uh, their champion for many years was, uh, Russia Kimura and, uh, guys like Kimura and Animal Hamaguchi, Uh, and there was a a few others, and I think a lot of these guys wound up in all Japan, but I had totally forgotten.
1: Ueda too, uh, the blonde guy, uh, Yumanosuke Ueda was one of their big stars.
2: Oh uh, yeah, Mr. Rito, correct. Yumanosuke Ueda, right. Who, uh, so there was, I mean, this was another guy. It was interesting too, and I think this was the sad thing. For many years, uh, in the old territory days, some of the best wrestlers in the world were coming over here from Japan. And they were relegated to working only prelims. And uh, Mister Ito was another guy. Mister Ito had a two or three tours of Florida and uh, never never got out of prelims. But he was well,
1: always let, let's be studies. honest. I, I don't mean to interrupt. I, the belief that I have is that American promoters, whether it was crappy promoters or really good promoters, they clung to that stereotype of you know that every Japanese wrestler knew karate. Uh, right. They all uh, did some sort of salt ceremony. They basically wanted their Japanese guy, whether it was, you know, like a uh, uh, Yoshiaki Yatsu or, or Janichiro Tenru or whoever, they wanted him to be Mr. Fuji, you know, uh, you know, Oh boy, son. Oh, very, very good. You know, that's what they wanted. They wanted that stereotype. Uh, they wanted guys to still be, uh, you know, uh, getting heat because of Pearl Harbor that had had, you know, happened 40 fucking years before. Uh, Not that I ever want to, you know, forget Pearl Harbor. I don't mean it that way, but the wrestling promoter in their minds, Pearl Harbor was last week, you know? So let me
2: ask you a question with that. Do you think, and certainly this is a, this is all speculation. Do you think this is what the wrestling promoter wanted? Because we know professional wrestling, even now, but really going back to the territory days was so political that, uh, for any reason let and let's just say hypothetically eddie graham and this is i have zero idea and i would say eddie might be even better because eddie actually uh he elevated mr saido to the florida championship in 1969 so when you think in the 70s of all these great talents coming over that uh could probably wrestle rings around a lot of americans they were all relegated to doing jobs and prelims eddie did in his defense uh put the strap on Mr. Saito in 1969, seeing the greatness that was Mr. Saito. And really anytime Saito was back in the state of Florida, there was always a push uh, and certainly a deserved push because Saito, I've always said there was great. And then there's Mr. Saito great because he's one of those unheralded guys that, you know, he made it to the national stage in the Federation as the tag partner of the aforementioned Mr. Fuji, which isn't, you know, I I realize some people love Fuji. Uh, I, I'm not in that camp uh, as a human being or a wrestler. May he rest in peace. But at the same time, I thought he was a terrible wrestler. Like I never saw Fuji. No, he was anything. he was a complete stereotype. Stereotype. He you know, never did anything, and it but was. But he just, was he was a guy that uh,
1: you know when he got to the federation, he became sort of. Uh, a slightly more talented Baron Cicluna, you know, he was one of those guys that they always slightly. knew was going to be there. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and he would, uh, always have a place on the card. Uh, when he became a manager, he, you know, uh, he, he was a dependable guy, uh, in the eyes of, he a company guy. guy. And I, I get while, well, you know, why those guys are, are valuable to a promoter, you know, and absolutely, but you know, let's be honest. Uh, you know, Mr. Tanaka. Uh, Professor Toru Tanaka was a Hawaiian guy. Well, so was Fuji. Fuji, Fuji yeah. Harry Fujiuara is from Hawaii too, I think. And, and, and then the, but the funny thing is you had actual Japanese wrestlers like, uh, Junji uh, Harada, who wrestled as the, the strong machine. He went to Calgary and they, uh, they made him an Indian. You know, he was sunny two rivers.
0: And, and,
1: you know, and, and then like, uh, you had That's other sick. guys, uh, what do you call, um,
2: did they make him? uh, like uh
1: Vietnamese too no no uh, what do you call it? you had uh Hiro hasi went over they made him Vietnamese right, right. Uh, then you had um uh Shinya Hashimoto
2: who they made a Mongolian guy
0: just like they did with <laughs> uh you know killer <laughs> Khan
2: so it's like uh you know whatever Next you're going to tell me that Ivan Koloff really wasn't a wrestler,
1: <laughs> yeah, really. <right>? Are you <laughs> trying to tell
2: me that he's not a bike guy to Ruski? Yeah, exactly. What is, what is going on in professional wrestling? So long story short, uh, I guess we were, I think it was, uh, Yumanosuke Ueda, however you pronounce that name. Uh, but yeah, but it was interesting. So, so this is what I was going to ask you. So, and I used Eddie Graham as an example and then went off and actually he's probably not the guy because he did, Treat some of the Japanese much better, but using Eddie Graham as an example, do you think, uh, and I'm sure it's a case of both, in my opinion, that in turning the Japanese wrestlers into either stereotypes or cartoon characters, that it was the promoter's way of keeping these guys in check? Or was it the promoter's thinking, this is what, this is how the audience is going to view this? The audience is going to view a Japanese guy as he should be throwing salt, the ceremonial salt. No, they I should always wrestle there. barefoot, right?
1: Yeah, I, they I should always
2: be sneaky. And even the tights. The tights always came down right past the knee, and then there was that knee to ankle, and there was no, and they always had the patch on the knees. Even the tights looked identical. What was the logic there?
1: And they always had the Japanese uh, rising sun flag yes. somewhere you know, on their body. and. It was no, I think it's absolute laziness on the wrestling promoters back then. Uh, you know. And trust me, there was a lot of really great wrestling promoters that, you know, just made their livelihood for decades. Uh but you know, if something was successful, I'll give you a prime example. We mentioned them earlier. I just got done uh reading Brian Solomon's uh um book about the sheik. And you know, one of the things that he very accurately, I think portrayed was the way that the sheik had a certain uh um formula uh for his matches and he kept doing it until his promotion was dead you know he kept pushing the same thing uh the the same uh you know it got to be like literally less than a five minute match of uh blood uh the pencil the fire and let's run to the back you know and at some point You know, people started realizing this is what I'm getting. I'm not getting a 60 minute uh, Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk Jr. match. And quite frankly, maybe you didn't want that from the chic. But at some point, you know, if if your promotion is successful and it's working, okay, fine. But at some point when it stops working and you've noticed that the attendance is going from 12,000 to 11,000 and a 10,000 and no, by the way. The automobile market, uh, and, and that industry in Detroit is now the complete shits. And all of a sudden you've dropped down to 5,000 because people can't afford to go to wrestling matches. Uh, you know, maybe you'll, uh, you know, kind of change the formula up a little bit and wrestling promoters historically changed the formula up when they were facing a real financial crisis.
2: I think that'd be pretty fair to say it would be too. And I, I think in the Sheik's case, of course, we slightly a case gone
1: of, off tangent
2: here. <laughs> yeah, we we have, but the interesting discussion nonetheless. And I haven't read the book that you just referred to. I've heard it's extremely, uh, uh, it's it's a great book, great uh, book, very well researched. But the sheik was also the promoter, so you got to think then his ego is what uh, is what oh, kept oh, him There's no question about yeah. it. Yeah, you know. and, and, and you, what he did in Detroit, and I'm, I'm sure again, I'm sure that Brian Solomon went through what happened in Toronto. Where you know how many how many weeks in a row did the chic how many months in a row and did the chic headline and remain undefeated and and they brought that down to Florida in 1980 uh, Dusty brought in the chic I think at this point Detroit had, was either on the brink of closing or it already closed I mean the tenants was down into like triple digits you know the they, they nothing happening, but they brought that formula to the main event one night of uh, at Miami Beach Convention Center, and I think Dusty was getting in the ring. The Sheik attacked him. There was blood. I don't think the bell even rang, and there was blood. The match wound up going somewhere between three and four minutes, if I recall correctly. And I got to tell you. While that formula might have worked in the in Detroit or Toronto or anywhere up in uh, in that area, uh, it did not work in Miami Beach because you weren't going to take that whole, that same formula, and as you just pointed out, you weren't going to bring it to a town that had seen a lot of sixty minute broadways between two professional wrestling legends, and all of a sudden you're giving somebody a three to four minute main event. Uh, it just wasn't going to work. So, uh, that's interesting. So getting back to, and I think we just started with, uh, I don't know. I don't know how the fuck we got off on this, Jeff, but
0: we
1: started talking about the way the promoters treated the Japanese wrestling guys,
2: right? And, uh, and we were talking about Tenru and Hara, but Hara was interesting to me, uh, again, because I didn't realize, you know, he died a few years back and he was much older. Uh, I think he was very good friends with Tenru was my understanding, and uh, Hara and uh, Sharuda also uh, were, uh, well, I take it back, it was Yatsu and Sharuta, uh, and they were good friends as well, but uh, talking about this match, which we really haven't done, solid, 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 and this is arguably, you know, it's funny because I, I, I go back and forth, I really like the light heavyweights, the guys that, in my opinion, almost revolutionized professional wrestling and guys like, you know, rollerball Rocco and Benoit and Owen Hart. And I liked the, the junior heavyweights tremendously, but I really liked the hard hitting style of the, uh, of the, the true heavyweights, guys like Sharuda and, and Yatsu, et cetera. So this match is good. It is what I also really liked about this match was the build on this match. This is again, you're not going to go into this match and give these guys 10 or 11 minutes. This is a solid, I think 20, Three 24 minute match and there's a build to it. And by the time the ending comes and I will not spoil it. I will let you discuss it. Uh, I was ready for the ending. It was like, all right, I, I could see it. Like the time, now is the time to go and, and close this match, but I would say this is a great match. You can't go wrong with any of these guys. And even though I was never maybe the biggest Tenru fan or as Gorilla Monsoon used to call him, Tendu, um, uh, I it, it, I was never the biggest. I had a lot of respect for the guy, and I actually think he kind of shines in this match as well, Jeff.
1: Yeah, uh, you just uh, made me think uh, when Yatsu was in world class. I have no idea why, but his name was Tola Yatsu. That's I, right. I don't remember what the significance was. So, uh, Surud and Yatsu, uh, their team, if you notice when, uh, they're doing the uh, the ups to the ring and they're being introduced. You see them wearing their ring jackets. They were referred to as the Olympians because, of course, uh, Jumbo and Yatsu both former members of the Japanese Olympic wrestling team. Uh, we discussed a uh, Tenru's background uh, as a former sumo wrestler. Uh, Ashirahara, don't know if you noticed this when you did your old research on the Google machine, as you called it, Barry. Yes, uh, Ashirahara, former rugby player. Yes, uh, and uh, yeah, and like apparently, like. Not not just uh, some guy that played rugby on the weekends. This guy was like a fucking world class rugby player. Yeah. And so
2: he was. You know what's interesting about that too? When oh, you please. look at because that that I I never knew that until I I did that research as well. When you look on on I think it's his Wikipedia page, it's listed as a Shurahara professional rugby player and wrestler. Yeah. Like the rugby's getting the top billing there.
1: Yeah. And so you know this is a guy that I I want to say. He kind of was like a little bit of a policeman in the locker room uh, for All Japan. Uh, yeah. He was a guy that definitely gave off sort of a you know, as I was making notes on the match, kind of gives you uh, a Dennis Condry, David Schultz, you know, like he's a bully, you know. Which, and I'm saying that completely, uh, you know, to to put the guys over and, and as a compliment because Condry and Schultz did a great job playing the bully heel, and that's what Hara does, and. Kind of, I think it was kind of a shoot, you know, because I think he was a real tough guy in a locker room full of tough. You know, if you're an Olympic wrestler, hello, you're uh, you got a certain amount of toughness <laughs> to you. And uh, I think Hara was a uh, that way also. Barry, you did not mention. I do not believe. Holy crap! The slaps and the chops yep. in this match are literally. You kind of go, oh wow, that looks like it fucking hurt. Super super stiff match. Uh I did notice there was a um there's a box spot in the match where uh somebody goes for a bulldog and it's kind of like uh kind of effed up, uh look for that moment. Uh Yatsu does a, a really interesting uh variation of the figure four in this match where he literally puts his knee across uh I don't know if it was Tenru or, or Hara, but he puts his knee across their leg bone. And it's like watching the match, you're, you're going, wow, I, I bet if that was a fucking shoot, it would really stink and hurt. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, uh, Jumbo does a great side suplex on Tenru. Uh, you know, and, and what I said here was it's just four guys just beating the shit out of one another, you know, for, uh, as you said, like 20 to 23 minutes. Uh, it ends up with a DQ, which is like kind of, you know, the one minor flaw in the game here. Uh, but this was a, a program that they were, they were playing the long game on. This was not going to be a, uh, you know, a one month program. So they couldn't go right to the pinfall. Uh, and Tenru and Hara get DQ'd after giving chair shots to Jumbo's knee. And, uh, as Jumbo's being helped back and, and, uh, Yatsu tries to put his arm around him and, and Jumbo kind of pushes him away because, you know, he has to, uh, you know, uh, as part of the storyline, he's like kind of the leader of the team and doesn't want to show any weakness and stuff like that. But if you're a fan of matches like, you know, the Flair Garvin stuff, uh, you know, the, the super, super stiff, the slaps, the chops, boy, this is the match for you, and you will enjoy the hell of it. We will post a link to this match again. It occurred on uh, the 15th of September, 1988, the Bruiser Brody Memorial Card as presented by Giant Baba and All Japan Wrestling, and we will post a link so that you can uh, check it out. One of the things also I wanted to talk about, uh, I w- was uh, the old rabbit hole on YouTube the other day, and lo and lo- behold, I stumbled upon, you know, uh, we've talked about before in uh, detail, my top 100 of the 80s, the matches. But I think we, on one episode, sort of ran over in a very cursory manner, my top 20 moments of the decade. Uh, you know stuff like the uh, the DiBiase Flair Murdoch angle, uh, the the Freebirds pile driving Ted DiBiase, and they're uh waiting for me to check it out. After the benefit of over thirty years of hindsight, this is your life, Jerry Lawler. This is memfo. It's Eddie Gilbert calling out Jerry Lawler, doing the old Barry. I know we are of a certain age. Are you? To the age where
2: you still remember the old "This Is Your Life" uh, TV show. Yeah, I do, and it was. Uh, it's Wow, funny you're fucking old. I am old, but Eddie Eddie Gilbert actually brings up the original host too. He goes, "You remember Ralph Edwards? Yes. I, I remember it because I want to say it was when we were really young. I, I forget what year this went off the. Greg air, Good was like forty then, so he. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Greg, he was already getting Social Security checks at that exactly. stage. Exactly, yeah. yes. his hair was beginning to thin. I think. Yeah. But so what happened was. Eddie uh comes out and this is, you know, it, let's be honest. Eddie's dream in life was to replace Jerry Lawler as the King of Memphis. Yep. That's all he wanted to do. Uh, he was a guy that was uh he was like a, a a real wrestling fan whose father was a wrestler, Tommy Gilbert, uh and that was Eddie's dream. Uh Eddie lived and breathed the wrestling business. I don't know that Eddie had a lot of interest outside of wrestling. And so he decided to, you know, uh, Jerry Jarrett, always a fan of, you know, uh, cutting close to the bone, uh, you know, doing the old, uh, uh, real life issues, uh, create, uh, you know, like, uh, interesting feuds. Someone else used something like that differently, uh, as an expression and, uh, I believe tried to claim they're the ones that came up with it. I'm not going to even allow that person's name to be mentioned though on this show. So. This is what happened. So Eddie comes out and says, you know, uh, Lance, uh, I want to I call the king out, uh, and I want to talk to him because I got a special presentation. And so they decided to do Jerry Lawler, This Is Your Life. This was uh, something that I picked as one of my top 20 moments of the entire decade. I have some thoughts as to uh, what I think about it after viewing it again. Barry, I almost said Eddie. Barry, <laughs> tell the folks what you uh, thought of this as you had a chance to watch it recently.
2: Yeah, I will. And I, so I should say the first time I ever met Eddie Gilbert was uh, 1978 and I was 14 years old and it was 78 was the first year I went to the WFIA fan convention and uh, it was, I, I think I went by myself that year to Pico that year. I, I don't know if Pete went that year or not. I think Pete did go. So I, I want, I think my. I, if I'm recall I mean, shit, it's, uh, what, 40, 44 years ago. Probably feeding uh, you the vodka and slushies. <laughs> well, I was, but my parents drove. So I, <laughs> it, was a, it was a little different because I think I was 14 and my parents drove and, uh, we got to Knoxville and I can certainly go on forever about the old WFIA and the hotel they put us at. But I got to meet Eddie and Eddie and I became friends and it was partly, I think we weren't too far off of, uh, of ages. I think Eddie was maybe, two years older than me. It was also his first convention. And he was a he was a fun kid. That's all it was. Like there was nothing, you know, his dad was a wrestler. He was very respectful of his dad. I can tell you that uh at one point, his dad was looking for him. And I happened to be with Eddie when his dad found him. And it was uh I think he called him Thomas Edward. And he was yes, daddy like he's very, you know, there was, he was very respectful, but he was, look, he was a lifer. This was a guy, you know, that his great, I don't know if you ever knew it. His grandfather was a wrestler. I think his grandfather's name was Arville, Arville Gilbert or something, but he, he had done some wrestling in the circuit and I think at carnival. So Eddie was actually third generation, which not a lot of people knew and just a nice guy, like far removed from anything. And, uh, I, I lost complete contact with him eighty, eighty one and I didn't I never talked to him again and uh I was really sad when he passed away in nineteen ninety four and uh very sad because he was a young guy, full of talent, and I just think there was a sadness uh that it had really taken I think I hate to say this, I think Eddie was one of those guys that wrestling kinda ate up, you know, and some for some people wrestling, uh, completely destroys your life. Others are smart and they get out and, you know, and others are able to manage it. And I, I think with Eddie, I, I think, I think he loved it so much. I think it actually wound up just overtaking him and killing him. That's my own opinion on that. But at the same time, you're right. You know, all he talked about was wanting to be, uh, a big star in Memphis. And I forget the, how he would phrase it. And I don't think he ever said, I want to be the next Jerry Lawler, but that's what he wanted to do. I mean, look, there is no secret. That is exactly, he wanted to be the guy who was main eventing Memphis. And it didn't happen. And uh, I believe he held Lawler responsible. Uh I know that there were issues between Tommy and Jerry as well. Uh And I, I just, I think Eddie, Tommy and Doug, uh, kind of had a falling out with the office and it's a shame because I, I know in his heart this was, it meant everything to him. And I, I think that actually also played a huge part in it. With that, this is a really fun segment and he, Eddie does a nice job. And Lawler, where Lawler's great is Lawler to me and I, he'll always be this way. I, it, it, you know, at least in my head, he will be Lawler's the kind of guy. That in any situation in wrestling, Lawler somehow knows what to do. Like the psychology aspect is there and his one-liners, which he's always been great at. Uh, you know, Eddie comes out and he's like, uh, you know, he goes, I don't, I don't want to look like a fool here. And Lawler says, oh no, don't worry about that. God already did that to you. You know, it's like it, Lawler's got so many one liners, but they trot out a bunch of people. The first one is Jim White, the late Jim White. It was Lawler's first tag team partner. And I don't know if that was really Jim White on the phone or a guy pretending, but basically saying he's a he's an old drunk now. He's got an alcohol problem. And uh, isn't Jerry happy that he's so successful because I'm an old drunk or that's what everybody knows. Yeah, me a, lot of,
1: a lot of people just say I'm an old drunk. That was the line.
2: That was it, and uh and it's it, there's. I think he's obviously working it at times because he's kind of almost doing a Foster Brooks. That's that's showing you how old I am, <laughs> right there, Jeff. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> try try to get people that are of a certain age to explain who Foster Brooks was. <laughs> and how in in hindsight, though, how embarrassing was Foster Brooks? I don't. Oh, but he was hilarious, you know. Yeah, he was, but like it, it, in my head, I'm going, God, that's just like. Just it's embarrassing because it was it was so obvious that he wasn't drunk, just a guy trying to do that over the top drunk. And I just for whatever reason, Uh he brings he mentioned Sam Bass. And th- that's an that's an interesting one, because he's essentially blaming Lawler for the death of Sam Bass. Sam Bass, little bit of context, was in a car, 1976, traveling town to town for wrestling shows, along with the late Frankie Hester, and I believe it was Pepe Lopez. And uh, they were wrestling as the Mass Dominoes, and Sam Bass was the manager. They got into a car accident. I think it was a horrific car accident, and I believe all three were burned alive. If I, I remember the cause of death correctly. So just a real tragedy, really ugly. But uh, it, there's a story. And I don't know if that was true. But Eddie Gilbert says uh, you were supposed to be with Sam Bass that night. But because you're such a big star now, you had to take a plane to the next town. I think it was you Jackson. He decided Tennessee. to fly
1: home that night and Sam had to drive. That's what the line was.
2: Yeah, well your memory's damn good. Oh, and uh notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and with that, uh that and that one crossed the line, but I'm sure that also got the approval of Lawler. Uh, and there have been worse things said. Then he trots out. I think it was Tommy Gilbert was next. Tommy, not Too just talks about how Jerry Lawler had beat him with a chain to win the Southern title. And, uh, but, and again, you know, he says, what a terrible way to win a title. Right. <laughs> Which is great. Uh, then they bring out Plowboy Frazier. This one is funny. And there, I guess this is the, the angle they were calling him Playboy Frazier. Yeah. And they said well, let's, let's, let's stop right there. So. Sure. How can we
1: explain every territory has that one guy that gets over and it's kind of like you have to explain how a guy like how did this guy? Like if you have somebody that is from, uh, you know, uh, California or, uh, you know, from uh, New York State and you bring them down and you're in Memphis and they see, uh, you know, Stan Frazier and they wonder. How the hell is this guy getting over? Like, who is this guy? And I think every Terry, you know, uh, Jimmy Valiant and Mid-Atlantic. How the fuck did Jimmy Valiant become such a huge deal in Mid-Atlantic as the boogie-woogie man? And, you know, uh as much as, uh, you know, we love the guy and stuff like that. I mean, Bugsy McGraw. You know, it was essentially doing like a curly gimmick, you know, yeah. from the three stooges and every territory had that guy and Memphis had Stan Frazier, the plowboy, who at this point, as you said, was the playboy and
2: please continue now, which is hysterical too, because, yes. uh, plowboy Frazier didn't look like a playboy. My favorite plowboy Frazier moment, uh, everybody usually says the wedding. What was the uncle Elmer? I believe. Yes. Was the Everybody always says the wedding. There is a match that took place, and I want to say it was—I forget who, but I think he was teaming with not the uh, not uh, hack, what, what the fuck hillbilly Jim. The other guy they brought in because they brought in two other guys, Lanny Keen and Gene Lewis. And yes. they were also, and Cousin I think it was Junior and who was the other one? Cousin. That's a Junior and there's something else. I forget what it was, but there is a match, and it was on one of the Coliseum home videos. And I got to tell you, one night I was uh, ripped in about five sheets to the wind, Jeff, and I'm watching this match. So Uncle Elmer's in the ring and he trips over his own feet. <laughs> it is rest in peace. I it, this may be disrespectful. But I got to tell you, it was the funniest fucking thing i would ever seen. He literally, because he was a big guy, he had to be yeah. 350 minimum, if not 400. He literally trips over his own feet. And here's a guy that probably had 30 years of experience at that stage, too. So uh, interesting. But uh, they bring him out. And it is funny what you just mentioned. He's saying that they're forcing him to say he's from Philadelphia, Mississippi, when he's really from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So and then I, I what's great is was when he funny. says
1: that some fan in the audience goes, you're a liar. <laughs> <laughs> you can audibly hear the fan yell that
2: it's really. Funny. That is awesome. That is. And that's the beauty of territory wrestling. When fans did believe and they would get really emotional like that, uh, they bring out next. Uh, they bring out they, they bring up Andy Kaufman. And uh, much like this, they're showing this is one of my favorite lines ever. They're they're showing a lot of uh Jerry Lawler beating the crap out of Andy Kaufman, including multiple pile drivers. Eddie Gilbert says, I bet it was the pile driver that caused the cancer to get loose in your body. And Lance <laughs> he's, in a, he's in a grave now. Yeah. He's in a grave. And Lance looks at Eddie when Eddie says that. It's, it's just fucking priceless. Like, it's just absolutely priceless. And Eddie Gilbert must have had the best time coming up with lines like oh, that. Oh, yeah. No, Oh, questions. absolutely. They round this out, this segment, with, uh, Jimmy Hart coming out. And, uh, this and, might have been right before Jimmy left, too. That would have to be right. This yeah. would be right about that period. And, uh, and Jimmy, you know, now there's, uh, Jimmy did to me, didn't add a whole lot to this segment. Uh, this is definitely Eddie's segment, but this was really funny. When I watched this, one thing comes to mind. How many horrific, and I'm talking cringeworthy, douche chills, this is your life segments have we seen over the years, especially from the WWE? A lot. And they've all, in my opinion, really sucked. Has nobody watched the way to do this correctly? Because this was fun, and that's what this is supposed to be. You're supposed to walk out of this and go, "That was fun. That was a fun ten minute segment." I, for me, I love this, Jeff. Well,
1: and you know, speaking of that, you know, like uh, how many times have you uh, seen a promotion try to uh, do the valet for the day that they did with David Von Erich and uh, Jimmy Garvin and and uh, and Sunshine, and that's just never been you know duplicated. They tried to do it uh, with. Uh, I think with Jerry and Eddie and Missy at some point, uh, I'm not sure. I know it was Eddie and Missy. I don't know if it was with Lawler or somebody else. And it just wasn't as good, uh, you know, because you have to overact to a certain extent, but not sure. to the, you know, the point that, that I know at least Missy did at that point. Uh, so now that we've had her as a guest, I can, uh, shit talk. her.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not she, she's not, not coming good. back on Jeff. Yeah, I know
1: <laughs> she doesn't, she doesn't like us. Apparently. I don't know. Apparently. What. But, uh, uh, a couple of notes that I uh, I made was at the very beginning of the segment, Eddie comes out and he has a great line where he says, what a, what a dead crowd we have today. Y'all are so stupid. And then Lance yeah. come on, Eddie. Come on, Eddie. Uh, the the one note I made about Jimmy Hart uh, coming out is he said, uh, he's talk to him, talking about how he got Jerry Lawler to cut a record. And he says, I took the worst voice in history of music and I made it sound good because he's such a, a legendary musician from his time with the gentries and stuff like that. Now, I will say, this was a fun segment. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed it. I had fun uh, going back and, uh, and watching Eddie just, you know, uh, be at really a, a great moment in his career and stuff like that. I don't think this is a top 20 moment of the, year. Uh, I really, I, I sit there and think, you know, uh, we, we mentioned the, the Jimmy Garvin and sunshine and David Von Eric. I think that was one of my top 20 moments of the, year. you know, uh, uh from Memphis, we had uh, the Bill and Buddy show with Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell. This was good, but I can't imagine that this was the second best skit from Memphis 10 years. You know, it was fun. We'll, we'll post a link to it and you'll enjoy it. But you'll also sit there and think, wow, there's, there, there's other stuff from Memphis. And, and I'm not talking about matches now. I'm talking about skits. I'm talking about angles that they shot where you sit there and you went, oh, my God, that was just fun. Epic, you know, like I mentioned DiBiase and, and, uh, and Murdoch and, and Flair and, and that whole scenario and, you know, uh, uh, Bill Watts, they're applying a pressure bandage to stop the, uh, the bleeding and that, you know, that, that was just so well done as an angle. And this was a great angle. Was it one of the, you know, uh, best angles of the entire decade? I don't think so. What, what do you say to that bear?
2: No, I don't, I don't think it was one of, I mean, cause it, it's, it, I think if anything, there when you watch this, there's no payoff to it. It's and even Lawler doesn't even seem upset at the end. Like he's more like, "What the fuck was that?" You know, yeah, he's, kind, so, he's kind of like peeved. Yeah, he's peeved, but it's like, yeah, it's not a uh, yeah, yeah. So I would say no, only because I don't know. I don't know what the payoff. I don't know what happened. Now there was an angle years later where Gilbert hit Lawler with his car, yes, which was really, yeah, and it was really incredible because Lawler took the bump, and, it you know, I think he had padding, but he literally took the bump, uh, and I think he was on the windshield at one point. That was very controversial, extremely well done, and when you saw it, you went, holy shit. Yeah, people called is- the cops. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, this is to me was just one of those deals where this was a fun, this was filler. This was a fun 10 minute filler segment.
1: Yeah. And so we will post a link to this, uh, this particular angle, uh, and we'll get your thoughts. Tell us what you think about this is your life, Jerry Lawler.
2: Jeff, uh, you know, one thing we've, we've always done on this podcast is we've tried to, be honest uh and when things affect us in in life we've always discussed it we haven't shied away from it a lot of it i think a lot of it has been extremely painful uh whether it's you know the passing of your dad or uh you know my divorce uh, your cancer battle there's there's just been a lot we've always tried to and you know I, sadly and i i got to tell you i'm getting choked up and i have goosebumps sadly uh we lost a member of I'll, it's my family, too, Jeff. And we lost a member of our family. Uh, but it was really, you know, th- this was your bud and, and you lost. Uh, you know, I, I'm getting all choked up. You lost somebody really special to you this past week, Jeff.
1: I did. And. This is probably. The most painful thing I've ever had to discuss this show. is very sad. I, I lost my dad. Almost a year ago, and that was a very tough. My family and myself battled cancer, and I went through a. You know, here's a big uh, shock for those of you that have never had to deal with that. Physically, cancer is is very painful. You know, the the medicine uh, that they use, the chemo, the radiation, it, it has a very debilitating effect on you. I still. Uh, you know, years out, uh, I have problems with uh, peripheral neuropathy, with my feet, balance, still am feeling the lingering physical effects of, of my battle with cancer. But I can tell you it does not compare to the pain I had to deal with the other day. I'm going to do my best to hold it all together. So when we moved up here from Florida a couple of months after we moved up and before I had my own battle with cancer we noticed that Gunny my boy had gotten a growth on his uh the upper part of his leg uh I guess where you would say his thigh was and so we took him to the vet where my daughter worked and vet uh aspirated it you know they sample of it uh, with a needle, and they look at it, and the the veterinarian uh, deemed it quote unquote suspicious, and that you know we want to take it uh, so that we don't have to worry about it. Because, you know, and of course, I immediately uh, I don't know if you know this very I'm a case scenario guy. I said, well, well, what do you mean suspicious? And they said, well, it might have some uh, cancer cells in it. And of course, you know, immediately I was like, is Gunny going to die? And they're like, no, no, we're going to remove it. So you know, Gunny went in, had surgery, got the growth and uh you know had a had a scar on his leg if you look at any of the pictures that i posted uh you can see on his leg where you know hair has begun to cover up the scar but it's a pretty noticeable scar on his leg from where they had to remove it because of course what they have to do is they have to have enough you know when they remove uh, you know part of it they have to have enough skin to basically seal the wound up and so anyway uh you know after a, you know, a week or so, Gunny was back to his normal self, and then time went on. And then one day, you know, we started noticing Gunny had a growth on his paw of his back leg. And, again, if you look at any of the pictures, uh if you look closely to his uh, left rear leg uh, on his paw, you'll see a growth. And it began to get bigger and bigger, and I kind of tried to sit there and ignore the fact that uh, he had this on there. And Kim didn't like to, to bring it up to me because, you know, she knew that, I didn't want to talk about anything. And, you know, r- relating to, you know, possibly the cancer coming back. And quite frankly, you know, Gunny, we got Gunny when he was, uh, you know, we got him from a, a rescue organization uh, called Tri-County Humane Society. Uh, c- keep me keep me on uh, track here, Barry, because I'm going to go off for just a second. Um, and when we, we got him, we were told that he was about a year and a half old. And, uh, but we really, you know, we don't know, you know, when you, when you get a adopted dog from rescue, you know, it's not like they've had him since they were puppies. You know, you'd like to think that. So we guessed that he was a year and a half old. And so, uh, at this point, Gunny was getting, you know, older. So we suspected cause we'd had him for 12 years that Gunny might've been as old as 14 years old, which for a dog, you know, you're getting up there using the old, uh, one year, seven years for a dog and, uh, you know, I was told there'd be no math. Gunny at around a hundred years old and human years, and so I began to see Gunny was having the same issues that, quite frankly, I'm having at, at 60 years old now. You know, I have problems with uh, my own mobility in part because of the cancer, in part because I'm 60 years old. Uh, you know, but um, so I was noticing uh, him having these mobility issues, and because of all this, you know, Kim said. Really, if, if it does return, we're not going to be able financially to do anything about it because, you know, uh deal to say treating a dog that has cancer as much as I would like to spend every penny that I have uh, to, to keep him with me, it's just not something that financially is, is feasible. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that my daughter told me the other night was, dog gets cancer, uh, even if you treat it with chemo, really just sort of delaying the inevitable, you know? And so anyway, uh, the other, the other day, uh, about a week ago, i wife said she had noticed that one of Gunny's back legs, the, the one that actually uh, had, had the growth removed, had sw- uh, swollen up a little bit. And, and then like the next day it had swollen a little bit more. And you know she made a comment to me one day. She goes, "Hey, did you notice uh Gunny's leg is uh, kind of swollen?" And you know I'm sitting there thinking, "Oh, you know he's he's got some kind of water retention because he's he's peeing like he should. You know he's got the good healthy flow. Uh, it's not like he's not peeing." And then of course you wonder if there's some sort of kidney related issue. But anyway, so his leg was swelling up, and then you know a uh, couple days go by, and then she noticed that the other one had started to swell up also. So she called my daughter, who as I said is a vet tech. And so she said, can you ask the vet what this means and if there's anything we can do? And on this past Friday, I was finishing up, uh, doing my, uh, my deliveries for Uber Eats and Kelly called me and said, can you put me on a, a conference call? And so, uh, we put Kim on and, uh, Kim said, Kelly has something that she needs to tell you, a gunny. Like you know, I, I always know when when I get something like that. I always knew it was never going to be good news because she was bracing me for something. And then you know she said, uh "Kelly needs." To, I said, "What do you have to tell me? Just tell me." Kelly had this way of uh, of saying that you know she was now going to be talking to me not as Kelly, my daughter, but she was going to be speaking to me as Kelly, the vet tech. And you know, she separates. The emotional component of, you know, what Gunny means to me and to Kim and to our entire family, Kelly included, uh, to being professional and having to explain something to me. She said, I talked to the vet and I asked the vet what this meant. And the veterinarian told me that this means that Gunny has 48 to 72 hours before the cancer is going to cause him to go into cardiac arrest. She goes, I can tell you that if that happens, it will not be pretty. I've seen it happen at our animal hospital before. It will be painful for him because his heart will go into cardiac arrest and he will have trouble breathing. And at this point, Tony was already beginning to have certain breathing issues. Uh, at night, he had what? Just some would sound like a snore, but it was him beginning to have his issues. He would begin panting. Uh, you know, we were woken up more than once with Gunny panting, and sometimes it was because he needed to go out. Sometimes it was because he needed a drink of water. And, you know, Kim used to always joke and say that, you know, we both are enablers, you know, uh, for our pets. And uh, towards the end, I really was. I was literally going and picking up Gunny's uh Water bowl and bring it to him in the living room. Not because he couldn't get up. I was just doing that because I wanted to do that for him. I, I, you know, I'm helping my, my boy. And so Kelly gave me the news and, you know, then she said, said, are, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. I'm not okay because, you know, my dog has, that's a couple of days left. How do I process this? Well, I hung up the phone, I came home, and of course, you know, I walked in the door, and I said, hello, and I see his head pop up from where he was sitting. His ears perked up, and he I see his tail wagging, and he gets up to come say hello to me like he always does, and I take him out, and he's doing his business, and everything looks fine. Except that monster, that monster is hiding in Gunny. Ready to emerge. Well, my daughter, or I texted her and I said, you know, do what you got to do. Let me just stop right here, because, you know, before we begin recording, I'm talking to Barry. So Barry Barry feels about Ozzy. And Barry has always said, much like I've said, that when the time comes for Ozzy, he's going to be a basket case. And, and I was. That's what I still am. Boss Gunny on Friday, and I'm recording And 72 hours. Am I better? Am I feeling good? Hell no. Because my, my boy, not my dog, my boy, was taken from me by fucking cancer. And I told Barry when I talked to him earlier, I said, you know, I said one of the things that, is available to people that have, whether you're a, a dog owner, or a pet owner, or whatever animal you choose to have as a pet. There are companies that are available in your area that will come to your home, provide the service to you, to be your your pet to the end and, and let them go. And what you got to do. Now, there may be some of you out there saying, "How could you do that? How could you do that to your pet?" I look at my options. You know, I wasn't doing this to a five-year-old dog that, hey, I'm moving. It's become inconvenient to me. I'm doing this to an old animal that was getting ready to suffer horribly. I had to make that call. And I feel like it's the call that if you're a responsible pet owner that you have to make, you have to take all the years of wonderful memories that you have with your pet You have to be responsible enough and strong enough because I'll tell you, it is not, it is not easy. You have to be able to be there with them at the end. They have to see your face, have to smell you as they do because they know your smells. You have to stand with them and you have to let them go. And you know, as I, And just before I continue, what I was saying is these services are available to you where they will come to your home and they will provide the service for you. And it takes so much of the stress of the situation from you having to put a disabled animal in the car and take them to the animal hospital and have the animal wonder, why am I here in this hospital? Because let's be honest, whenever the animal goes to a vet or an animal hospital, there's a certain amount of stress. the animal. And then there's people, there's people that won't go in with their pet. And, and I don't understand that. And you know, it's not easy, but you have to suck it up and you have to do that because you have to be there for them. You want the last thing that your pet sees or smells or feels to be you there with them, comforting them, whispering to them. How much you love them singing to your pet the way that I sang to my dog, to my boy. Not ashamed to say. I've always said that I would sing to Gunny John Lennon's song, Beautiful Boy. John Lennon wrote that song for his son, Sean. As Gunny took his last breath. I sang beautiful. My boy Gunny. I felt him take his last breath. Dirt. And said, "I don't think he's breathing anymore." I bet That he's gone. Shame to say. Cried. Mm. I cried like a baby. My wife cried. It's not easy. Matter of fact, it's absolutely fucking. You owe it to your pet to do that. And right that night, when I got in bed, and Kim and I would would talk about Gunny, I would break out crying again. Still happening. Started wondering, you know, because I've I've had. Had dogs before. I've had had dogs that, you know, very first dog, get all modeling here. As if I'm not modeling already at this point. You know, my first dog I had when I was a kid, I had her for sixteen years. I don't know if I've ever told you that. Uh I had my dog Lady. Ten years old. My dad told my mom, every boy needs a dog. Parents got me a dog, and it was a rescue. And I had Lady for sixteen years. And One day when Lady was about 16, she got out of our front door, and we didn't realize it until all of a sudden we're like, where's Lady? And she's gone, and we thought we had lost her. And we went by, and we were putting ads in the paper, and we were calling rescue groups and Pound and all that, and nobody knew where Lady was, and I went to the uh, Pound one day, and lo and behold, there was Lady there, and they had had her, and just, you know, I don't know if they... Misidentified her or what? But I got her back. I got her back for three. Months. One day I went out and had a, we lived in Fort Lauderdale. We had a pool. Found a lady in the pool, falling in. Like to think that lady had a heart attack and just fell in. I, I'd like to think that she wasn't struggling and looking for me, and I wasn't there for her. It absolutely killed me. It just absolutely gutted me. Then the next dog that I had in my life was with second wife Kelly. And when I got divorced, I asked Kelly if she would call me before she had to Misty down. That was our dog. And because we didn't have any kids. Misty was our child. And, you know, one day Kelly reached out to me and said, Misty, uh, Misty's gone. I had to put her down. She was having a lot of physical trouble. So I wasn't there to make that call. It wasn't for Lady. Then when I met Kim, we had Beezer was the dog she had when I first met her got married, living together, got midnight. And the latter part of 2010, within a span of, geez, three months, Beezer, who was in a lab, golden retriever mix, was also beginning to have physical problems and cardiac arrest when I left for work. But when I came home, he was already gone. Later, in December, my boy Midnight, I came home and son Andy said, I think there's something wrong. And I looked and night was basically comatose. Didn't know why. We took him to the animal hospital on the street. Famously remember saying, Oh, we can do all these tests on him. It'll only cost you $3,500 before Christmas. And I said, what are you kidding me? He, oh, well, then we'll hook him up to a, you know, Saline and give him some fluids and see, you know, just keep an eye on him. Later that night, that called me and she said, uh, "Slipping very fast, Try to try to do anything." I said, "No, I have to be." So go ahead and do what you got to do. She said, "I don't need to. He's already gone." And. 12 years, 12 years, and when I think about my boy Midnight, my black dog, it still hurts to think about that. About a week after we'd lost Midnight, and we still had another dog, a dog, uh, Jazz, who quote-unquote Kim's dog, she was a female. Started thinking about, Kim wanted me to want to get another dog, and I said, I'm not Sit there and you think, am I somehow is this betraying Midnight and Beezer by getting another dog? I said I'm not. Really. And then we had gone up to visit my brother. I think my parents came back and I told, him, I-, I think I'm ready now. The Tri County Humane Society, walking around and Kim always has trouble going in. She said she always wants to adopt every dog in there. So Kelly and I looking in at Gunny and said, what about this one? Gunny was sort of in the back of the run. kennel, And he wasn't really coming out to let himself be shown and to show his personality. And I was like, well, come on. Are you going to come out and say hello? And kind of looked at me and didn't do anything. He was laying in his bed and I was going to pass him by. I was going to go to the next run to see if the next dog looked good. And I don't know why to this day. Turn back around. And I looked at Gunny. I did what I what I call the Scooby-Doo. call. I went, huh? And when I did that, Gunny's ears perked up and he got up and he came walking to me. And I said, well, hello there. And he kind of let me scratch his head and had this little scar on top of his head, and nobody ever knew how he got that scar on top of his head. That was like his little identifying mark, I guess. And so we took Gunny out for a walk, and so we ended up bringing Gunny home. And Gunny's been with us for 12 years. And, you know, I I told Barry, talking something else, you know, as I realized, you know, why is this loss affecting me so much? Why Why am I still crying three days later? I told you one of the reasons was because Gunny was the first one that I had to make a call on. I had to be the one to tell the doctor. It's time to say goodbye to him. It was my call. And then about a day later, I was thinking about Gunny. But I literally, I'm walking around the house and bed is, and that makes me think of him. And I sit there and look in our bedroom at the spot he used to lay on in our Gunny's spot. We have a rug by our front door that we put there for him because we have a wood floor. Rug at his age helped him get up a little bit easier. So we call that gunny's rug. Then I realized that 12 years, 12 years I have had two constants in my life. My kids moved away, you know, My parents lived in a different city. My sister lived in a different city. My brother did. Friends, you know, I left my friends in South Florida and came up here. You know, I have many friends in our group. Every single day for the last 12 years, two constants in my life. If Kim, Sonny, now constant in my life and Kim isn't there anymore. God, does it hurt. God, does it hurt. I'll close out this segment. Repeat something that said to Sean in that song. I used to say to Gunny, Good night, Gunny. I'll see you in the morning. Mary and Lou, I hope you'll join me here. Telling my boy Gunny that when it's my time and I'm gone, I look forward. I look forward to that special day. I'll see lady the jazzy girl
0: Funny. as I walk to that rainbow
1: beach. Memory of God. I hope not just Barry and go Join me now. God, I miss you, my boy. My son. My other son. Because that's what you were. Fare thee well, my boy. I will. I will see you on the other side. I have to believe that. I didn't believe that.